Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. You can follow my adventures, misadventures and boring life as always on tobymiller.org. And I'm very happy to be here with a new friend, but whose work I actually knew without knowing that I knew it for many years, namely Judy Muller. Judy, how are you? It's great to be here. And the first thing we have to clear up is that I asked you to do this interview or conversation to talk about your new book, but we are not going to pronounce one of the key words in the title the same way, no matter how much we try. You're going to say emus. I am. It's so annoying. So pedantic. <laughs> so foreign. Emus. Emus. So tell us about, <laughs> I can't help it, my father yeah. was Australian, I lived there yeah. for years. Yeah. Tell us about your new book, which is not really about Australian birds. No. Emus, or emus, loose in Egnar. Uh, big stories from small towns. Egnar is a small town in Colorado. It's range spelled backwards. They wanted range, but it was taken already, so they, <laughs> it says a lot about the town, actually. But there are lots of towns called normal. Normal, in the United and States. of course they aren't. But why can't there be two towns called Rain? I don't know. I think they just wanted to be different. So they, Emus Lucent Egnar is a police blotter item from that town's paper. And so this is a, a book about small town papers in America, which are doing quite well, thank you very much, as opposed to their big city cousins. They are actually thriving. Now, that's interesting. I should say, maybe half the audience to these podcasts is in the United States, but maybe 50% Oh, sorry, yeah, 50% is actually in 49 other countries. Oh, okay. So, in lots of those countries, particularly wealthy ones, national newspapers and mixed newspapers are having the same sorts of problems that ours are. Right. But in some of these countries, newspapers are actually growing as national literacy increases. Oh, I and see. national income increases. So, maybe you can contextualize that a wee bit okay. for our audience. Well, I should say that in the United States, in the United States, the big city newspapers have been really hurting in the last decade because of the internet, basically. Uh, they didn't see Craigslist coming, and for those who don't have Craigslist, that is a free advertising venue. And so that took away all their classifieds. They didn't see that coming. And people can pick and choose what they want on the internet. They can go to all kinds of news sites. Um, and because the newspapers didn't see it coming, they failed to charge up front. Now they're trying to charge after the fact. But they've lost a lot of subscribers, they've lost a lot of advertisers, and uh, they're firing reporters, and it's downsizing across the board. Now, what I discovered when I went on my little journey down what we call the Blue Highways of America, which is on a map, they're pictured in blue, the off path, um, I found that the little weekly newspapers that serve towns of, say, 5,000 people are doing quite well. And the reason they're doing quite well is because they're doing something called hyperlocal reporting, which they is the new buzzword for big cities, but they've been doing hyperlocal for years. In that other words, they call business. That's right. They have news about that community that those people can't get anywhere else. That's the only source. If you want to know what's going on in your town, that weekly newspaper has it. Also, they um, aren't giving it away for free on the internet. The ones I found were charging for their internet content. They've learned by watching. And so all of that, that works to their advantage. They have advertisers that can't advertise anywhere else. And uh, so, so far, they're doing pretty well. So those advertisers presumably are not the conventional classified advertisers, no. which is you and me selling our car. No. These are like the big bank in town, the big auto dealer. Now, the downside of that is you're always like one or two big advertisers away from bankruptcy if you yeah. work in a small town. And so that brings up the other subject, which is you have to be very... Wow, that's a big bus going by. I need to say that just in case anybody's wondering, where are they sitting? And in time, by the way, where we're sitting, yes. just to cut in for it is Pete's Cafe and Bar. I'm on a one-person crusade, one should say crusade, but a one-person campaign to bring the attention of uh, cosmopolitan jet-setters like Judy to downtown <laughs> Los Angeles. And we have to sit outside Pete's Cafe and Bar because we're from the working class and they don't want us coming in other people. No, no kidding. There's no seating inside right. at the moment. So we're outside and it's really quite pleasant. Yeah. But there's a film shoot or a TV commercial or TV series shoot on. There are, And there is public transport in downtown LA and it's zooming past every right. now and then. I'm glad you put that in perspective. So getting back, getting back to what I was saying is that because your business in weekly newspapers is right on that edge financially, 
all the time. Uh, it takes real bravery uh, to be a real journalist, to report the truth about your neighbors. You have to live next door to the people you're writing about, which is a much tougher calling than it is for me as a, I was a network news correspondent, airdropping into a town for a few days and then leaving. Yeah, you so, come in as a famous person from yeah. a famous business yeah. and with no ongoing responsibility right. to live next door. Right. By the way, uh, Judy worked for both ABC and CBS, right. which are two of the traditional big three networks in the US. Now there are four commercial and national networks. When we say the networks in the United States, what we're referring to is entities that are available to viewers who don't necessarily have cable or satellite. Right. They're going to be available right across the US on, in a sense, old-style broadcast TV, even though now that term barely has meaning. Right. Because so many people have cable and satellite, and in the high-definition digital television era, really the old-style antenna system of receiving Signals, you know, it just the, the term watching TV is going by the boards. I mean, we are now experiencing things. things. We, we're experiencing the newspaper. Nevertheless, <laughs> the national networks that you work for remain the most popular networks in terms of people watching nightly news. Right. Although yours are less popular than NBC. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Nevertheless. Rub it in. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah. so that is the context. So um, these people, they can't afford to write a nasty story about the biggest car dealership. In but town. they do. But they do. In other words, they will write the truth, some of them, uh, even though it means uh, real fear of losing advertisers, uh, angry readers. Um, and usually in the end, even though it's kind of a lonely job sometimes, um, People respect them, um, and people buy the papers, so they're obviously doing something right. But you have to have your heart in truth-telling, and I, I just yeah. am so inspired by these people. I, I came away, some of them had gunshots fired through the windows of their offices. One family had, uh, the newspaper office was burned down, torched by a coal mining, by a thug, uh, thank you. That was the food being delivered. I feel obligated to do a running commentary on audio interruptions. This is not the way that Judy has lived her life. <laughs> a very, very Where's my soundproof studio? And prominent broadcaster. <laughs> uh, actually, let's get a plug from there. Yes. That was the waitress asking if everything was okay. I'm doing a running commentary. We're recording. Okay. <laughs> well, we talked about that. Let's just quickly get, go off topic. One moment just yes. to, to get a plug in for those people who listen and live in LA or in surrounding areas. Right. You've actually got something going out tomorrow night, Friday, on KCET, which is our local public television station. Right. That's right. Um, KCET SoCal Connected is the program. I'm a correspondent for them. I, I contribute pieces. And this is a story, it's 12 minutes long, which is a nice lengthy chunk for television. Um, about the push for solar energy, which, Amy, you know, how can we be against solar energy? I mean, everybody's for it. You know, it's let's fight climate change, get renewable energy going. There's a big push by the Obama administration to put solar plants in what they call solar energy zones in the deserts of the Southwest. And California has a lot of desert. Uh, for people who don't live here, the Mojave Desert alone is thousands and thousands of acres of land. Most of its public land run by the Bureau of Land Management, uh, a government agency, which is supposed to both protect species that live on that land, but also be open to recreation needs and energy needs. So critics of the BLM call them the Bureau of Logging and Mining. <laughs> so it gives you an idea. I but, used to live in Western Australia, where the, the state bank was the R&I bank, which technically meant rural and industries, but was known popularly as rude and ignorant. <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah. so right now, um, starting last year, this hu huge solar thermal plant, it's going to be the biggest in the world, takes up almost 4,000 acres. And it's on the road, if you're driving from California to Las Vegas, many people know that road, the I-15. And it's not exactly what you'd call wilderness. I mean, you look at it and you, you don't think, oh, wilderness. You're looking at tacky casinos. You're looking at shopping malls. 
You're looking farms. Not yet. There was some and the Ivan fifty, but on the ten. Right, right. In that direction. No. But this is uh, the Ivanpah Valley specifically, right. where this project is. And it's owned by BrightSource, an energy company. And it's a solar thermal plant that's going up. It'll be like 66,000 huge mirrors, heliostats, aimed at the sun in a big circle, aimed at a big tower where steam will be heated up and turn a turbine. And transmission lines will carry the electricity to Los Angeles and other areas. So who can argue? Well, the whole idea was that you put these things where there's sun, where there's transmission lines, and where the impact on the habitat is minimal. Unfortunately, the government, in its eagerness to get this going, allowed BrightSource to do the biological impact statement. They went out, they looked around, they counted 25 desert tortoises, which are a threatened species, on all these 3,500 acres. And they said, okay, go ahead, that's not a lot of tortoises. When you see them, pick them up, protect them. Turns out, there are many, many, many more tortoises which anybody could have figured out because they spend 90% of their time underground. So, wandering around right. looking for them. It's not and I don't know that. Real yeah. idea the right. It's called dirt science. Kick the dirt and see what you see. <laughs> so, in the middle of construction, they had to stop because here's this threatened species and find a way to protect the tortoise. So, now they've got these tortoise pens. Every time they find a tortoise, they have to put it in the pen take care of it. They have a biologist who spends the night on site every night. And the idea is that come spring, after they've been hibernating, they'll take them and relocate them. Right. Sounds good. What could be wrong? Problem is that tortoises don't take well to being moved. Last time they tried it, nearby Fort Irwin, 50% of the tortoises died. So it's there's an environmental group that's suing to stop this construction. So what you have is this environmental split. In a while, I'll be looking for There's an environmental split. I mean, some of the environmental groups are split right down the middle, arguing within themselves, yeah. what's more important, yeah. renewable energy or protecting a species? Right. These are the hard choices facing us in the future. Yeah, and for those people who are close to LA, you can watch that on KCT. Right. I don't know whether that can become available later on. It is online. It is online. If you go to kcet.org, uh, punch in SoCal Connected, it will come up. Great. Yeah. So, um, thanks for that very, very important diversion, Judy. <laughs> so, going back to the Small Town Weekly newspaper, um, one of the things I've been talking about to my students already this quarter, the University of California, rather than at Berkeley, the listeners, is, the, is all on the quarter system. Uh, has been the internationalization of news gathering, even in the case of local papers. And of course, in the, oh. in the case of the, the newspaper that covers the area you've just been in, uh, talking about your forthcoming episode, uh, namely Pasadena, uh, this uh, is a newspaper, has a local newspaper called the Pasadena, which notoriously... What? Here we go. It's the cops come to pick Judy up. It's a large... over that one. Anyway, yes, I know what you're going to talk about. Right. The Pasadena Sun, right. was it? I think it's called the Pasadena. Okay. Actually, but I'm Star. not sure. Star. Anyway, that local paper outsourced, to use it in itself a very ugly word, and the reason I'm talking so much about it is so Judy can make some impact on the... Linguini, pasta. which is delicious. It is very nice. <laughs> Linguini and vegetable. Uh, they decided to outsource local news gathering to Bangalore. Right. In India, where there is a company that's done very good business in many parts of Japan by having people located in Bangalore, which is, again, for, for some listeners who may not be aware, one of the high technology centers in India. News gathering located there by journalists covering local towns in countries they've never been to. Not only do they not live in the places being covered, They've never actually visited the nations in See, all you have to do is get a copy of the agenda of the town council meeting, call up afterwards, say what or what action listen, was taken. You can listen to it. Uh, in, for instance, uh, KCRW, uh, mm -hmm. one of our local national public radio affiliates here, covers the Santa Monica City right. Council. I think, as you know, that was such an uproar over that story that they canceled that. That they did cancel yes. the lead, quite so. Right. 
But anyway, so it, it's interesting to think about this question of how far you can go with localism. You can't go to Bangalore, Toby. You, you can't, can't go, go to Bangalore. Bangalore. No. You no, you can't. You, there's no substitute for a living reporter being on scene. Just there isn't. You get nuance, you get body language, you know what kind of follow-up questions to ask because you've been following it a long time, you live there, yeah. you know the characters, you know the players. There's no way to ask smart questions from Bangalore about a culture you don't even understand. So answer me this if you could, and it's one of the things you address in this really fabulous book, folks, I should say, it's wonderful. Uh, oh, thank you. Of, uh, Judy's and mine lent me a copy the other night. <laughs> really love making my way through it. Um, when you were doing the national news reporter, thank you very much, parachuting in, how did you manage to localize to get the story in the part of the US you were visiting? Oh, and well. And what have you learned about the difference between that and really being embedded, to coin a phrase, through the research you did for this book? Well, there's no substitute for living in the place. I mean, there isn't. But I would go in for three or four days, do quite a bit of pre-interviewing on the phone, um, and I'm a pretty quick study because of my network experience of coming in quickly. And, um, but people, were, what I found with these local papers, these editors who were so busy, I was never allowed to come any earlier than a Thursday afternoon because the papers go out Thursdays. Friday is usually one day off, uh, or maybe Saturday. But you know, so they'd say, well, maybe I could give you Friday and Saturday if you want to follow me around, but. You can't come before the paper's in bed, as they say. How many staff does the editor have, typically? Depends on the paper, but... There goes a dump truck. Uh, this, is, this is play by play. Yeah. I would play say... Play without commercial I would say the largest staff I saw on a weekly small town was six. So they're bare bones. I mean, sometimes it's just the editor and their family, you know? Sometimes the sports reporter is the guy's brother paid $25 an article. You know, this is you're not going to get rich doing this. Although it's a great place for a young reporter to start, I believe. I started a weekly. Did you? Yes, in New Jersey. I was in my 20s. I was on maternity leave from a high school teaching job. And that's what started me down the path of journalism. I was a theater person and, uh, before that. And I made the switch into journalism because I just adored it. And I loved I loved being part of the community. I loved being first to know things. So And on maternity leave, I imagine that fractional casualized reporting can sometimes actually suit you. What do you mean by that? You know, you're there on a Oh, right. Pay per story basis right, right, right. rather than salary right. basis. That's right. You can work the hours that are suitable right. for you. That, yes, it does work out as a part timer. You bet. Um, they gave me my own column, which was great fun. And that's how I learned how easy it is not to have friends anymore. You know, if you have, <laughs> you have an opinion column, boy, you're going to find out no, you know, who your friends are. That's my next question. It's become quite common now in the national press in Britain and Australia, as I know from personal experience, and in some local press here, not to pay for stories. I what? Have people who, yes, I have a column in the national, the only national newspaper in Australia, owned by Rupert Murdoch. It has my name on the column. Yes. Or the mask ticket, whatever that's called. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't get paid for it. I know somebody who drives. Well, shame on you. Really? No, let's talk about it. And I know somebody who, who has a named column in a national newspaper in the UK was not there. The Huffington Post has made its money on the backs of people who are willing to write for free. And I wrote for HuffPost for a while. They didn't pay me. I did quite a few articles and I thought, this is insane. I'm a professional writer and a journalist. I've done this all my life. I'm not going to give it away. And I advise young reporters, even if you're paid $25, make sure you're paid because it is your confidence in the fact that you are doing this for as a job. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to pick on you. I'm, you know, it's nice to have 
you know, no, your, I your words out there. No, I told you it was a softball interview before we started recording, but that doesn't mean it, you can have to hit the I'm ball. I'm going to really go after you, you now. Hit the ball right. <laughs> okay. It's just, I understand it. I have lots of friends who, who write for free, but if you're a working journalist, you know, you can't make a living that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I know several journalists who are very angry at people like me. <laughs> now, all of that said, let's focus more on me because I like it. <laughs> but for the moment, let's go back to the small town. What about if it's a college town and it has a college ball club, you know, a basketball or football team? Right. Or it has a high school right. with a high school football oh, team. Oh, please. Okay. High school sports, one now, of the what major. About providing yeah. coffee free, written by. A professor at the local college. Some of them, college, some of them do that. Yeah, some of them do that. Uh, no, terrible. High school coach, terrible. You can have stringers out there, and if they're willing to do it for free, well, you're an editor who's fairly savvy. But first of all, high school sports in a weekly newspaper. I didn't look at any college towns. Um, are huge. They're one part of what I call the holy trinity of local papers. It's high school sports, obituaries, and the police blotter. Those three things carry the paper. Now, for our you know, many non-US listeners, some of that doesn't apply really in other countries. Can you just give us a bit of context about those, those three well, let me, okay, classic sure. topics? The police blotter is basically a list of all the calls made to the police or sheriff dispatcher that week. And they're usually printed verbatim, which is half the fun. So you'll get an item like, person called to report wife went missing 18 months ago. You know, I mean, it's just rich. They call 911 yeah. to say, I woke up this morning and saw a note from my wife dated a year and a half ago saying, right. bugger you. Yeah. yeah, no, it's really, some of them, That's I could just do a book on police blotter items. They're wonderful. And they're unadorned. So this is Judy Muller meets Ouija. <laughs> yeah, yes. And the second, uh, obituaries. In a small town newspaper, obituaries are very different than the New York Times. The people who die, their their qualities are valued for the kind of person they were, not necessarily what they achieved. Um, titles, awards, don't mean much. It's what what kind of a neighbor were you? What kind? Of, did you give a helping hand? And often, it's kind of spun in, in, for instance, if the guy was a gambler, I read one that said, Uncle Tom liked to uh, play with the horses and communicate with Publishers Clearinghouse, which runs a big lottery. You know, it's this kind of thing. We know that and Uncle Thomas was one of these people who blew money. Or he liked his drink every night, you know, because he's probably, probably a you know, a person with a real problem. Right. So you could really kind of... You can read between the yes, lines. Yes, it's wonderful and fun. get a very rich... Wonderful fun. Um, so in a sense, the police, to get back to the police plot on some, are writing for free. No. In that they're giving you their text that they've generated that are then printed on adulterated. They're not just a source, in the sense of something about around which you build a story. Well, it does... They're, they're it, more, it does change. No, it doesn't change. It changes um, from town to town. There are some newspapers that, that definitely edit them. They don't use them all. Um, so, and some newspaper, some police departments are now resisting. Used to be when there was a printout, a hard copy of the of the sheriff's dispatch log, that was information the public was supposed to be able to get. Now that it's on computer. They are trying to say, well, you can't come into our office and look at our computer. We don't share that information. There's been a real pushback. Isn't that interesting? That's partly about technology, yeah. the way that different technologies right. generate different anxieties about privacy. Is right. That yes. That's right. So things are, are changing all the time. The third leg of that trinity, as I said, high school sports, and for people in other countries who I think the best... The most comparable thing I think of is the way people feel about their soccer clubs in Europe. Um, it's that kind of, it's just unbelievable, especially if you're in Texas. Friday Night Lights, uh, all about Texas football teams. It is huge. You can make a lot of money if your team goes to the state championship. You have an extra edition come out. 
on that. And you can sell all kinds of ads, lots of pictures. I used to say... TV station will cover high well, school games. Well, if there with, is a local with, TV station. One, with 16-year-olds yeah. playing. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes that will be picked up and watched by people who live quite a long way away. So Maybe. It's hard, it's, yeah. hard, well, it's hard to describe the intensity and the passion of media interest right. in high school and college sports right. in this country, huh. where so many parts of the country do not have professional teams. Right. It's such a long distance to go and watch Major League That's Baseball, right. the National Basketball Association, That's right. National Football. Now, You've got to go a vast distance, spend a lot of money to get there. If you're going to watch the NFL or the NBA player, pay a vast amount of money when you're there. You, have, like you have to see one of these games in Texas. Um, this little town in the panhandle of Texas where I covered this one little paper, which is fabulous. Um, and I'm going to Texas tomorrow, actually, and seeing these folks. But their football team won the state champion in their division, which is a very small town division. But... Um, at the beginning of the game, they introduce each player, announce their names, and as they announce, they run out into the field through a huge smoke machine, through the artificial mouth of, I think it's a lion, you know. It's just the spectacle, and this is high school in a small town. When, on Friday night, when they went to the championships, all the businesses shut down in town because there were buses for everybody to go. When they lost one year, they said it was the depression was so huge in town that people just couldn't talk about it for a week. So I'm talking insanity here. Yeah, and, and in some ways, you're saying this is the only thing that could generate on a fairly regular basis a special issue of the paper. That's right. There's no other kind of... The other one is at Christmas when I saw one paper prints all the letters written at the school, the elementary school, from kids to Santa. And of course they're charming. And everybody who has a kid buys that paper. To make their child yes. feel special. Yes. So all the advertising in that is just, I mean, that's just gravy. What about, uh, again, for, for folks outside this great nation in which we somehow or other live, what about, whatever it is, the second Tuesday in November, Election days. Right. Do these papers endorse candidates, which is a mm. big thing for newspapers in a way that it's not for radio stations or TV right. stations? Some do. I think the stronger editors, and by that I mean the braver editors, write editorials regularly, and good for them. Um, not easy, you know. For instance, my friend Lori Ezel Brown, who's the editor of the paper in the Panhandle of Texas I told you about, um, she is a Democrat in pretty much a Republican gas and oil and cattle town, uh, one of the few people who supports Barack Obama. She will write an editorial about it, at, uh, you know, her opinions, but she will open up the pages to everybody. So you can write a letter to the editor and have your, your point of view in there. As long as people feel their voice is heard, I think there's room for that, but it, it takes a brave person. Um, connected to that is the issue of ownership and control. Yeah. One of the factors that's very important often is proprietorship. So, I mean, just to personalize this for a moment, and I'm, again, I'm not being interested in the interests of your consumption of the <laughs> while it's still warm. Thank you. The newspaper that I write for at the moment, that I've got, is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Right. I would never accept money from Rupert You mean in the form of payment? In any kind of money. Is that why you're doing it for free? Uh, it's an interesting question. <laughs> I mean, I, I would not, I, I want, some might, one of his, no, I'm not going to go mm. down that rather phallic yeah, right. path, but, I want the opportunity to be read in columns that he owns uh -huh. without feeling that I am benefiting I see. I see. Because I, I, I regard him as a, an unmitigated monster. Well, there you are. I know, what an incredibly brave thing to say. Would you say that in your column? No, because it wouldn't be printed. No, but I say negative things about Fox. Mm. Uh, in any event, the question is... Uh, a minor one about proprietorship 
ownership of these papers that you're addressing in your book. Is the ownership pattern That's a good question. Uh, one of agglomeration? Uh, it's both. And, and are the proprietors intervening much? Okay, that's, that's a great question, and I, I expected when I went out and did this research that I would hear that family-owned papers are the best, uh, where they've been in the family for generations and there's one family that runs it, and that papers that are part of a small chain of papers with a publisher living someplace else are terrible. I did not find that. As one person said to me, you can have bad papers that are family-owned or chained old papers. You know, it cuts both ways. Um, what happens, here's the benefit of having a publisher who has money and owns several papers behind you. Lawsuits. When you're sued, they have the lawyers to protect you. Yes, can I get more coffee? It is very good. Um, telling your audience. This is excellent linguine at Pete's here at 4th and Main in Los Angeles, and we're not being paid for that. Uh, That's one of the themes of the, this conversation, actually, the legitimacy or otherwise of free labor. Mm -hmm. It's still labor when it's not paid. Mm -hmm. so, mm. so you didn't find any pattern that connected the system of ownership to the quality of the paper or the independence Only, of the No, I didn't. Yeah. Um, what I did find was sometimes a, a family-owned paper will sell out to a chain. And the chain is more interested in money than it is editorial content. She's brewing some fresh coffee for you. Okay, so thank you. Ah, uh, she's brewing some fresh coffee. Okay. Um, I feel obligated to tell your audience everything that's happened. Um, Poor Judy. In sort of an Andy Warhol kind of way. I am now leaning onto the table. Judy's idea of proper Oh, I, I'm sure horrified here. I'm horrified. That there is a sound recordist, a mm -hmm. photographer, mm -hmm. a producer, mm -hmm. and that she is just focusing in on her interviewee, and everybody else is fixing up the levels. And if a bus or a fire truck goes past, we stop. Shut down. We stop. Now she's finding she's in the arms, as it were, <laughs> of somebody who of a total reprobate in terms of audio, an audio prostate. reprobate. But that's okay. Let's continue. Let's move on. Yes. Um, actually, I just came from a studio, radio studio, where we had the headsets and the microphones were all adjusted and we would do retakes and, you know, this is really very easy. The fact that I can actually eat an entire lunch while I'm talking to you <laughs> is amazing. Yeah. So, in terms of this question of scale and ownership, that the, uh, there's a mm -hmm. tendency for small, locally owned, family owned, to sell out to chains. Mm -hmm. no. I don't think there's pressure. I think people get tired. This is a really grueling business. People don't take vacations. Um, they hardly have any time off. They don't make a lot of money. They make enough money to live in a nice place where they want to be. But putting out a newspaper every week 52 weeks a year, maybe 51 if you take Christmas off, is grueling. And you have to love it, and you have to be doing it not, not for the money. Um, How many of these papers are there in uh, There are approximately 8,000 weekly newspapers. Yeah. And, yeah. And Does it's, that include things that people might have heard of, that are somewhat different, like the Village Voice or the LA Weekly? I don't know if that was included in that number or not. I don't think it was. Um, might have been, but even if it was, it wouldn't dent it much. I mean, I, I didn't look at urban weeklies. I was more interested in rural America and see what was going on, who's representing, who's, who's being the watchdog. And they take that watchdog role very seriously. You know, as one guy said to me, if we see a politician who's misusing taxpayer funds, we don't hesitate to nail them to a stump, is how he put it. And okay then. Um, I mean, it, you know, sometimes they'll bury the lead a little bit because it's sort of code. I mean, if you live there, you know how to find the truth in the article, though it's not, it doesn't hit you over the head tabloid style. What about, and again, 
again, this is something that's quite different from about the United States, and it also varies from place to place. But in some places, you vote for the local sheriff, you vote for the local judges. What about taking on those people, as opposed to the mayor? Well, Lori Ezell Brown, the woman I told you about in Texas, got word that the local district attorney, the county DA, became a very powerfully political family, Republican, was actually dealing drugs and abusing his wife and children. And she got these tips. They wouldn't, but yes, you're right, they could learn. <laughs> and she, a lot of, some of these tips came from the cops. The, the police were upset because this is the DA and great. And this but she again is the person who is like, say, in Europe, a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. That's right. So this is not the person who will decide as a prosecutor would in say Italy or Spain or Sweden. We'll follow the inquiry this way. But this is the person who decides whether or not we'll prosecute. Right. Right. So she didn't have the resources or the time to do the kind of investigation you'd have to do. So she, he was running for office, again, re-election, and so she asked him some very tough questions during the interview, which he, he was furious. He lost the election, or did he? I can't remember how it worked. Anyway, he sued her. He's a lawyer. Almost drove her out of business because she had to hire a lawyer to defend. She, she ended up winning, it was okay. But meanwhile, they had a very powerful enemy. He was elected to the DA's office, and, and a very powerful enemy. In the end, he was discovered to be dealing drugs, and was tried, convicted, and sent to prison. And I said to her, that must have been some schadenfreude. He must have felt very good sitting in court to see that see the thing that you had suspected was true. I'm going to be going home, so I'm going to transfer you to the Okay? Just that, that way you know if you're looking for me, he'll be out here to help you guys and all of that. But you'll still get the tip. No, 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 don't worry about it. Absolutely. No, it's okay. Honestly, yeah. He'll just hook you guys up. Thank you so much, though, for considering that, but yeah. They'll make sure you get it. Huh? They'll make sure you get the tip. No, don't worry about because if we transfer, it's just we just transfer over the table, so it's okay, honestly. Thank you so much though. Well, that's not right. No, we don't like that too much. We don't like that at all. Again for for foreign listeners, it's worth noting that I'm not saying this is true of this particular cafe bar, which I love. Some places in the US literally pay nothing to their employees or waiting to not even minimum wage. So the tip is really? all they get. Yes, I mean, it's not legal, that's what they do. Lots of places pay minimum wage, which is enough horrible, which will get you five cups of coffee a week at Starbucks. Right. So, thank you very much. Thank you so much. I'll still have a here. No, that'd be great because, you know, I'll probably have a cup of tea and my friend may have something else. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. No, no, this is on me, basically. Oh, come on. My, my guest and my guest in It's on him. <laughs> okay. The, the IRS is listening. <laughs> in any event, um, sorry to... Thank you very much. Not at all. Thank you for coming. As the actress said to the <laughs> No, it's terrible. Can you say that? Yes, you can. This isn't the radio. Okay. I can't help myself. It's just being in the radio. No, thankfully, there's no censorship. All right. I do. Actually, we were talking about the law case. The, yes, and and, and and what she said to me when I said, "Did you was that satisfying in a way?" I said, "Did you feel satisfied?" Yeah. Sean Freud, and she said, "You know, I didn't. I I was sat in court and I watched his family. Yeah, and his kids crying. Yeah, and this is a small town, and I had no joy from that. And I thought that's." The difference yeah. between a small town editor if you see yeah. big city. Mm -hmm. Right. But you're close to these people. You live in the same town. So you don't want to be their enemy and you don't and you feel for them. So I it's this kind of person. I mean the more I talk to people like this, the more I 
I sort of was ashamed of my own distant reporting style. You know, I, I became, I think, a better reporter for having done this book. Just, it, it kind of softened me a little bit. Like, remember your responsibilities here. Remember to take care. Remember to tell people stories with some, some care. Um, not that I wasn't, but I don't think I was quite as, as conscious of it before. In the, in the broad, big C compassion sense, yes, I think it is. It's about connecting to other people in your community. The reason I ask this is that the other night when Judy and I met, we were with some other people who, like Judy, have been in one very prominent network correspondents. And one of my complaints about US journalism that applies as much to all across all the media, the internet itself, radio, television, newspapers, is the requirement to personalize everything. When we had a conversation like this, personalize by it. which I mean to find one individual person. Oh, right, right, right. right. Oh, yes, this is a formula. Yeah. Right. It's a formula that I find quite ludicrous because it means I've got to listen, watch, or read through lots of stuff that I actually do not care about oh. until I get to what really matters. Mm. This is why it's great that you couldn't interview the tortoise. But to me, I wish I could have. Because I, I think there are bad storytellers who use that formula poorly. I would like to think I'm not one of those people. And I do think you can use a person uh, and their story to be a microcosm of a bigger issue. But it shouldn't, in this country, it has to begin the story. Yeah, it's kind of a like me, that's the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. So in other words, I'm not saying yes. that the narrative style is wrong. Yeah. It starts, you know, 10-year-old Jimmy has autism. Da-da-da-da-da-da. I could, I could... Uh, if you need anything else, let me know. I'll be taking care of you from now Thank on. Thank you very right. much. So we closed out what we've had up to now, but we yeah. may be ordering something else. Don't worry. Just okay. let me know, all right? Thank you. Hey, guys. No, I, I get that that matters, but I want to know what autism is. How many people no, yeah, but, but you will find that out. You should find that out within the first three paragraphs. Until I know that this is something beyond this pistol story. Okay. If it's a spectacular murder, different. Yeah. Right? If it's a really spectacular horrendous incident, it has become a cliche. It has become a cliche. You're absolutely right. But I must say, I teach journalism. At USC. University of Spoiled Children is the No, that was the old days. University of Southern California. And these days, University of Southern California's op uh, board scores for incoming freshmen are higher than Berkeley's. So I just want to point that out. We're talking about. Yeah. Judy says board scores for incoming freshmen. That means the grades that they need to get from standardized testing into the and the old cliche used to be, the stereotype, was that students who couldn't get into the University of California system, which is wonderful. But had money to go to the University but, Sports. Right. And that was the old, but things have changed. Yeah. Uh, so tell us what you tell these. I, what they I tell them. Yeah. Mind, <laughs> uh, always speak English as a first language students. Which is also, we have the largest number of international students of any university in the country. But that's it. I tell my journalism students that they need to have great characters in their stories because nobody cares about statistics without human flesh on them. So this is, you don't want them to fall into a, a cliche trap. On the other hand, too many of them go out and do research papers. They're, I mean, they think of it like an academic paper and they don't put a human face on the story. So I'm always pushing to do exactly what you're just arguing against. Um, well, no, I'm not worried about it being there. I don't want it in the first paragraph. All right. You see what I mean? That's my problem. And I don't see it in other countries being Is that right? I see it in Mexico. It's not in the first paragraph. In Britain, the death toll is. Okay. Not in, <laughs> in Mexico, it's the death toll. Well, the, when it's something very spectacular like the death story, mm -hmm. it actually can be in the first paragraph of the personal stuff. Uh -huh. All the numbers can be. But my experience is that the idea that one person's story is uh, way yeah. as a reader is not right. as common in other countries as it is. Right now, that's my problem. Not that you personalize, not that you 
you know, make sure that there's a narrative drive that engages people and is human That's all fine. But right now, I guess what I grew up with is that the social implications of what you are telling as a story first, then color. Well, our idea is that have them care about a real person, yeah. RPs as we call them. RP, <laughs> which in Britain in the media means received pronunciation. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so the way I speak English is RP, which used to be the only way you could be on the BBC. Well, I'm, I'm obviously being sarcastic about that. Go find some RPs for this story. But, um, it still is to me, in my way of thinking, the best way to hook people into caring about something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it doesn't always work and it shouldn't always be the same ridiculous narrative formula. It's, it, it's, it becomes a cliche and people tune out like you. So if people aren't listening, then what? it's not working. Now, at, at a, the level of a local newspaper, I get it completely. You know, Johnny, age 16, kicked a field goal in the last minute to win the See, game. I, I disagree. That. I think if you're talking about the West Bank, you can tell me all about the number of Palestinians who are out of work, who can't, who can't cross the border without being harassed. All that, you can tell me all of that in the big picture. If you show me one person or a family, what that does to their everyday life and how it grinds them down, I get it better. You know, they have, there's a face to it, there's names, they tell me how there's no school, they tell me how they can't get a job, they sit around all day doing this and that, and then I get it. Yeah. No, I, I so, don't dispute that as being part of the story, part of the book. It's, it's literally the place that I don't like it. Okay, I'll let everybody know that, Toby. Well, I'm going to pass this on. Yeah, right. My opinion is hugely important. I'm just saying, I'm, I don't think No, I'm it is going, important. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> and I think what you're saying, I mean, you, you're doubting it too. You're saying it can be a cliche, but it really is a cliche. It's always in the first paragraph. Uh, it's also, it's also becomes a cliche and noticeable if it isn't done well. And I think that that's, in the hands of a great storyteller, there's ways to do that. Uh, and there aren't many great storytellers anymore. So that's a, that's a loss. We've got about a quarter of an hour left. We do? That's okay. <laughs> you'd like to stop now. No, this is a long show. Okay. This is a long show. Yeah. I'd like to ask you uh, to reflect back on this is your first video. No, it's not. Can you tell us about your previous book? Yes. My previous book was, if I may be so, He's not talking to me. That was a basset hound that just went by. Just want to make that clear. Okay. <laughs> just to be clear, um, my first book was called Now This, Radio, Television, in the Real World. And it was a bit of a memoir, which sounds extremely narcissistic, since I wrote it when I was, whatever I was, 50. Um, but I really thought that I had some great stories about, it was sort of, my experiences as a single mother, raising two kids alone, in a deadline-driven career that's so demanding. And I don't know if your audience will know these references, but it's sort of that intersection where Murphy Brown meets June Cleaver, and it's not pretty. So it's like, you know. So for these references, Murphy Brown, an internationally popular, Late 80s, early yeah. 90s show. Tough Candace, female reporter. Candace television. Bergen, yeah. And, and the character had, was an alcoholic. Right. Yes. The dry alcohol. Recovering, recovering alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's many similarities here. Right. Because uh, I am. The June Cleaver. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. The June Cleaver was the lead female character. Leave it to Beaver. She was the mother who dusted the house and vacuumed the house while wearing high heels, a dress, and pearls. So and every Beaver was her youngest son. Right. And the idea was, was to be the perfect mother right. and wife versus this single, crazed person. So you were so, in between these two. Right, right. It was sort of, and if anybody remembers Irma Bombeck, this great commentator about suburban life, I wrote in the style of Irma Noir. It was a little <laughs> darker, a little hipper, but that was the book. 
and there were a lot of funny stories in it, and it was, um, and also some some sad stories. But uh, it, it really actually did very well. I was surprised. Um, so it was fun, and uh, but now when I read it, I kind of cringe because I'm you know whatever ten years older or something, and it just feels feels like ooh, you know why did I write that? Too self revelatory No, I mean actually. My friend Ted Koppel, who I was, a, was an anchor of Nightline at the time, and I had him write a blurb for it, and he called me from like Saudi Arabia, where he was reporting. He goes, "This is a very brave book," and I went, "It is." Whoops. Of course, I go, "Why?" You know, I didn't know that it was brave. And he said, "Well, because of the drinking chapter." And I have a chapter about getting sober. Yeah. And uh, and I didn't mind writing that because it's helped a lot of people. I've heard from a lot of people who who related to it. Um, but I didn't think of that as being particularly brave. I thought the dating chapter was braver, quite frankly. <laughs> you know, whatever. But it it's funny because my children, who are now adults, of course, and, and they were then, sort of asked me if everything could be now off the record. Using my family as material is now verboten. Yeah. Yeah. So. Ted Koppel, again for listeners outside the U.S., originally a British guy, actually. Mm-hmm. But um, in the, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, in the, from the late 70s to the late 90s, was in some ways the most authoritative voice of current affairs on network television. Well, I thought so. And he always had this show called Nightline on ABC. And it started, it didn't start out to be a permanent show. It started out with the Iranian hostage yeah. crisis. So and they were just going to do it every night as long as there were hostages. And of course it went on and on and on. It said, day whatever of the Iranian hostage crisis finally morphed into its own show. And I worked for that show for many years. And he was, without a doubt, the best anchor editor I've ever worked with. The only, and as a viewer, the only... Any sense intellectual right. current affairs program on network television in the time that I've lived. Right, right. He's now back on the air at NBC on the new show called uh, Rock Center, and he's doing pieces for that. It's not quite the same as seeing him no, in charge. It's not the same. He also had the best hairdo uh, on network television. And he will challenge you to, to move it. He says it's not a toupee. <laughs> Nobody would buy a toupee that looks like this. This is my real hair. No, it's just, I'm not assessing it is a toupee, but it's helmet hair. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. Yes, it's different. And he never moves his head. It's very, very interesting. He's, he looks like sort of Jimmy Carter's younger brother. Ooh, that's awful. Is that a bad thing? Yeah. Sorry. How about half brother? No, like, we're not going there at all. Just, just Jimmy answer. Carter's brother was, you know. Oh, sorry, it was Billy Carter. Yeah. Of course, was a very yeah. important figure. Yes, I, I right. wasn't meaning. I can't even connect it. Yeah. Carter. I mean, just in terms of That's interesting. physiognomy. In any event, Nightline, the program that Judy can talk about, is really no, the standard setter over the last 30 years. I think so. current affairs. Now, it's interesting that on this day that we're talking about this, tonight, the new Nightline, without Ted, it's a different version, is airing what they call an exclusive interview with Newt Gingrich's ex-wife. One of his ex Right. In which she's make, saying on the air uh, that Newt asked her to have an open marriage, that he wanted to have this mistress. And, now, that, this thing, yes, the thing about that is that she told Esquire magazine this very same thing. In 2010. That's right. There's nothing exclusive about this information. What makes it interesting is it's on television, and therefore they're touting it as and, something. And let's be honest, Ted Koppel I don't not have thought this was a story about whether or not I disagree. It would have come up in some context, but it would not have come up as some sort of expose interview. It's making this centerpiece and it's advertising all this week. It's leaking story all over the place in little yeah. bits. No, I'm good. I'm good. Are you having anything else? I'll have another cup of coffee. Coffee and tea. Awesome. Like black tea? Yeah, yeah. We have like a different selections. 
So you will just bring the selection. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So you think he would? Would it, would it be a centerpiece story in this way? I'm not suggesting it would be it would be irrelevant. It's a real good question. I'd love to ask Ted. I, I there was a time. Get under that head. Well, Sorry. I reported on the O.J. Simpson trial for Nightline. Yeah. And Ted took a lot of heat for putting it on once or twice a week. The ratings we got from that, and I, I like to think we only reported what happened in the courtroom. It was a, you know, I thought it was an amazing story about what it said about the difference between black and white perceptions Race, of justice. Sex, it, 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 violence. Well, all of that. Domestic violence, yeah. I thought there were really important themes to it. But there's no doubt that the country went a little crazy over that story. Um, and Ted didn't cover it the same way. Maybe not, but he uh, did cover it. Three big anchors yeah. He did, but he didn't, I think it's fair to say, give it the same... Tabloid spin. I think you're right. CBS and but, but at any rate, Ted took a lot of heat just even doing it at all because of his, his reputation as sort of a, you know, intellectual. And he argued, he said, it's a hell of a story. And he says, and the money that comes from the revenue of the ratings of the nights we do the Simpson trial pays for me to go to South Africa to do something about apartheid, which this, you know, might not be funded otherwise because that's a tough story. So I get it. I think there, I think often the energies, the pulsations, the popular fascinations of tabloid-style stories actually relate to really important issues. Yeah. I'll give you an example. October. Right. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, for some level, look at the story, why are we talking about it? Yeah, another level, come on. Talking about women's issues with fertility. Sure. Fertility drugs. Sure. Responsibility of, of doctors. Responsibility of doctors. These are really important social questions That's right. all over the world. Yeah. Uh, to take one that people might find even more absurd, Britney Spears and her haircut when she chopped oh. her hair off. At one level, completely absurd. What about young women put into the celebrity eye, issues about body image, Depression, body but it wasn't covered that way. No, no, no. But, it, but what I'm saying is That's the an issue. basis of the story yes. is very important. That's right. That's right. Um, and with O.J. Simpson, it's murder. It's not cutting your hair off or having eight children. Right. It's the brutal killing of people. Right, and it's, all, and it's about the way that the races see justice in this country. Right, Split right down the middle. Sure the other story he did, that yes, when you brought this up, I had to laugh, because I I criticized it when it happened, was Jennifer Flowers and Bill Clinton. And during the, the 1992 election campaign. One of Bill Clinton's former mistresses, Jennifer Flowers, let's just call it what it is. Big and great. Fantastic hair, come on. Right. And she was on the National Enquirer broke this story. So huge story in the National Enquirer. Ted decided for Nightline that night, is it right for the National Enquirer and other tabloids to be digging up this dirt? And in so doing, through the back door, got to do a whole half hour about Jennifer Flowers. And I said, oh, come on, you guys. That's like having both ways. I mean, you know, it's like, do it or don't do it. But don't, don't say it's about coverage. Yeah. You know. Thank you. Um, he did. Excellent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out his accent, actually. It's not uh, Spanish. No. Yes. Because <laughs> a lot of the guys here uh, are native Spanish speakers. I mean, I've been here a few times in most times. Right. We could ask him when he comes back. Oh, I'm not allowed to ask those questions. U.S. women are always allowed to say Yes. What is that? In any event. So there you are, you're in front of the program. Well, I, I confronted them in a nice, polite way. I, you know, I liked my job, and um, and even Ted probably has limits about being criticized. Could I get some milk when you have some cream? It's coming right now. Okay. Irani? Italian? Italian? Thank you. 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 Th
Where are you from? I'm from Mexico. You are from Mexico City. He's from Mexico City. Okay, we were wrong. Okay. So that's interesting. Different kind of accent. All right. With Jennifer Flowers, this was another threshold issue, like the O.J. Simpson issue in '94 and '95, for serious current affairs as opposed to the there was room for everyone at that trough. I'd like to say that we we took the high road, which was somewhere beneath the continental shelf in the Mariana Trench. Uh, I mean, you know. Uh, it, I loved covering it. Oops. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to throw things at you. Thank you. Um, I love. I just spilled the sugar. Just I have to. Uh, I have to do a running commentary. It's driving me crazy. Judy is now being the guy. First three seconds, which is sachet of sugar went on the ground. I'm not going to pick. Oh, that I don't care because it was the last one. And, uh, yes. What were we talking about? The question of the coverage of Jennifer. Oh, that and everything else. Um, the tabloid issue about the well, as we know, rock and a hard I mean, yeah, the tabloid, right? Tabloidization of the news is, I mean, it's it's even quaint to raise the question, yes, because it's gone so far yes. over the other side. Um, it, it's it's just outrageous. Let, let, me, let me pose this to you, Don Hewitt, a legendary current affairs producer in the United States. Created the show 60 Minutes on CBS. 60 Minutes. And I know, I knew him. Yeah. Was the person, I think he would say this himself, who was single handedly responsible for the destruction of television? He did say it. Yes. He said, I, I feel so guilty. Yes. Because up until 60 Minutes, News and Current Affairs was a lost leader. Right. It was a social responsibility. It was right. not a profit center. He showed that you could make money with news. Good storytelling. Right. Because people who tried to copy 60 Minutes didn't do it as well. And so they put on, there was Dateline, there's all these other shows, 2020, Primetime Live, that found it was easier to do these kind of tawdry, simple celebrity pieces. Now, 60 Minutes can do a celebrity piece, and it's just wonderful. Um, it's just the difference in quality. But he was right. He, he kind of paved the way for quick bucks. Um, trying to think of a, a couple of pieces that 60 Minutes does on a celebrity that would differ from, well, name your celebrity. I mean, they would just do it differently. Not only that, they'll throw in stories of, I think, greater consequences. Oh, they do, of course. Much greater. Right. And, and not always with the U.S. focus. Oh, no, I know. It's wonderful. So, you know, they've got some kind of formula they work with. Three to one, let's say. Right. Who knows? What we really need here, if I might like say, along the lines of spicing up the end of your show yeah. with a tabloid kind of... We really need a drive-by shooting, but not at us. We need a car crash. We need sirens. We need... You well, know, the kind the of L.A. Chase. scene. Yeah, no, that's true. Now, we don't know what's oh, being shot. Oh, car chases. We My... don't know what's being shot, but we did see a guy with a walkie-talkie. NCIS. Sorry, NCIS. NTSC is the acronym for a net of the same color twice. Oh, 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 okay. NTSC is the, the acronym for the television system of the United States. high definition. Oh. I did not know that. Yeah, NTSC is what we have. That's why you're a cultural affairs person. NTSC is the television system we had as opposed to PAL, which is what the Germans innovated, which is much better. NTSC was therefore the never But we're talking about NCIS, which is a very popular show here about the Naval uh, Intelligence Service. Yeah, Mark Harmon. Oh. He's still my heart. Yes, I am. What is it? I don't get it. I don't either. I, I don't, I mean, I, I'd like to see him with more of a sense of humor. I prefer House, actually. Uh, My daughter thinks I look like him. House? Yes. You don't see it. In a dark room. <laughs> with all the lights With my on. glasses off. Maybe. Of no, no, it's impossible. That's possible. What about Colin Firth? Are you part of the Colin Firth? Oh, 
please. Is there anybody who's not part of the Colin Firth column? Every woman, every straight woman in the world has this thing about him. I don't get it. It's like Mr. Chubby Cheeks, boring accent. Oh. Plays the same no. like Tom Hanks. I don't care. He's the English Tom Hanks. Is he? Isn't I think he's more interesting than that. Uh, no, truly, my ideal Brit is John Cleese. So I, you know, so that's like a, comb, like a comb over. That's where I go. Yeah. <laughs> that. Well, uh, Judy, I think you've actually provided us with the Big Bang <laughs> and the Absolutely desired right. drive-by without a victim. Yes. Absent the car chase. Uh, you've been a wonderful interlocutor. Uh, you're going off to Texas tomorrow. Right? Well, you've got this show on this episode, part of a show, right. segment on KCET tomorrow night for those able to watch that. Uh, your book, it's new book from University of Nebraska Press, is terrific even though I can't pronounce the title. Emus Loose in Egnor, Big Stories from Small Towns, available on Amazon and other places. <laughs> it is terrific. Thank you. And thank you very much for being with us. Can I secure from you a promise to come back to the blog? Oh, sure. We have to do this again. It's been a joy. This was fun. Thank you very much. Excellent. Get that? <laughs> you got that. Here comes the revenge of the coffee cup. <laughs>